When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Within the orange, red, blue, and white rooms of the Say My Name video, among the independently moving furniture and weird hotel-style art hanging from the walls is drama. Real drama. There's something shady, sinister even, in Beyonce's famously arched eyebrow, something passive-aggressive in the girl's decisive staccato head turns. The video puts the four members of Destiny's Child in different coloured rooms. So Beyonce Knowles is in the orange room, Farrah Franklin in the red, Kelly Rowland was blue, and Michelle Williams white. But two key members of Destiny's Child, Latoya Luckett and Latavia Robertson, were nowhere to be seen. Pretty weird, considering they had co-written the song, which would then go on to win two Grammys for Best R&B Song and Best R&B Group Performance in 2001. All of which is incredibly wild, because the two of them would tell the press that this video is how they found out they had been axed from the band and replaced with new members, Farah and Michelle. Why did Farah leave the group just six months later? Spoiler, she was fired. And what made Michelle stick? To move forward, we have to go back. It's time for a very short history lesson on Destiny's Child's ever-changing lineup. Are you ready to go back to the year 2000? It's the 21st century. The future is now. now, now. The winner of Big Brother is... What date is a computer going to think it is when we get to 2000? Welcome to 2020, a pop culture podcast by Message Heard, hosted by me, Simran Hans, a writer and film critic for The Observer, and me, Tara Joshi, a journalist as well as the music editor at Galdem. This is a show where we pull era-defining pop culture from 20 years ago into the present moment and look at it from a fresh, critical perspective. That means in season one, we'll be revisiting bands, movies, TV shows and trends from the year 2000 and talking about what they meant at the time, how they were received critically and how they shaped our culture today. So how old were you in the year 2000? So I was born in January 92, so I turned eight in the year 2000. I also turned eight in the year 2000, February 92. Where was eight-year-old Tara living? She was living it up on the Isle of Wight, which was an interesting place to have a childhood as a brown girl. But let's not get into that because we will be here a while. Yeah, I guess I was just uh, by the seaside eating ice cream. Those are much nicer ways of framing that. I was living in Ipswich in East Anglia at the start of the year and it was quite a strange transitional year for me because my family moved to the States, to Virginia in the summer, actually on July the 8th. And I I know it's July the 8th because that's the day that Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire came out. So the date is emblazoned into my mind forever. It's, It's weird to think about 
this time when we were basically children and yet consuming so much pop culture and now both you and I make our living out of analyzing popular culture of of the current moment and so it's funny to look back at the beginnings of that for us as well right not just what was culture like when we were young but also what sort of things were sparking us at that age I also always think it's funny because I imagine if I said to eight-year-old Simran or indeed eight-year-old Tara um yeah that song you're listening to on the radio right now or that movie that you can't stop watching like you're gonna get to write about stuff like this one day you're gonna get paid to do this like that's so wild to me as a concept what does the say my name video tell us about the year 2000 why are we starting here When people talk about Destiny's Child and they kind of talk about the moment when they entered the mainstream, the watershed moment is generally thought of as No 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 Part 2 featuring Wyclef Jean. But now actually I think that's more of a deep cut. A lot of people's first kind of memories or knowledge of Destiny's Child starts with Say My Name. Yeah, I think this era of Destiny's Child is the one that people are the most familiar with them. I think as well, when people talk about MTV and the kind of explosion of the music video in the noughties, Say My Name is really a video that stands out and the aesthetic of it, the colour blocking, the the choreography as well. Yeah, I just remember watching that video again and again. And that's such a specific thing for that period of time as well, just like watching the music channels. I guess I don't really watch TV that much anymore in a way that's not me just watching it on my laptop and specifically streaming what I want to watch. And I guess the same happens with music videos now where you put on music videos that you've heard you should watch. I mean, I personally try to recreate the experience by kind of letting the algorithm choose, choosing a deep cut on a YouTube playlist and just letting them play out uh, and transport me back to my youth. I respect that a lot. Maybe I need to do that more. Uh, I would highly recommend it if you just need a hit of nostalgia. (laughs) Okay, thinking about who are the most important, powerful, significant pop stars today, there is really only one person who springs to mind, and her name is Beyonce Knowles. 100%. You would have a really hard job arguing anyone else has that status. And a lot of people who are kind of around the same age as her, who came up with her, haven't lasted in the same way that she has. It's not to say that their star has faded, but I don't think they're creating stuff that feels relevant in the same way that Beyonce has consistently remained relevant with what she's been putting out. Totally. She's a legacy artist. It's really interesting to kind of think back to the origins of that legacy and think about how she got here and and also who were the people who accompanied her on that journey. I think it's also an opportunity to look back at the media storm that surrounded this band and reflect on how this huge girl band was perceived as their fame was peaking. The other thing we can do with this is consider it as the roots of what will become one of the most powerful women in pop. I was trolling the YouTube comments for the Say My Name video. As you do. Often. One thing that really struck me was someone saying that this video is actually the beginning of Beyonce's solo career, which I don't necessarily agree with as a take, but I think it's interesting to view it in that light. It's debatable whether it was always the Beyonce show, but I do think that the dynamics of the band and and the music they were creating as a group is incredibly significant. I think it's something that we're going to have to explore in more detail. Okay, let's recap the timeline. So we're wheeling it back to 1990. 
with a group called Girls Time, with a Y, obviously. So that's Beyonce Knowles, her childhood friend, Kelly Rowland, Latavia, and three other members, all of whom auditioned. And there's quite a famous video. Which of Beyonce's videos is this at the start of? Uh, I think it's the beginning of Flawless, isn't it? Yes. Okay, so at the beginning of Flawless, there's this clip of uh, Girls Time on a talent show called Star Search. Your challenges are a young group from Houston. Welcome Beyonce, Lativia, Nina, Nikki, Kelly, and Ashley, the hip-hop rapping Girls Time. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't win. And then in 1993, they cut three members and they add Latoya. And then they're signed to Elektra Records. But in 96, they get dropped by the label before they can finish an album. In 1997, this is when Destiny's Child proper begins to be formed. They sign with Columbia Records and they release their breakthrough single, No, No, No. They have some chart success with this, but nothing too major. They're still considered more on the R&B side of things than the pop side of things. But in 1999, right at the end of 1999, Michelle and Farah are added to the lineup and they shoot the video for Say My Name. Michelle had previously been a backup singer for Monica and Farah had actually been a backup dancer in the Destiny's Child song Bills, Bills, Bills. So this is how they'd kind of been spotted by the band's manager, Matthew Knowles, father of Beyonce. And yeah, this happens right at the end of 1999. And at the beginning of 2000, the video is released. As we mentioned earlier, two of the band members do not appear in the video. And that is because apparently they've been dismissed. There are conflicting reports about how it happened. There's a really brilliant profile in Vibe magazine that essentially says that Latoya and Latavia sent a de-affirmation letter in December 1999 to Matthew Knowles & Co saying that they wished to leave the band. Um, However, in lots of video interviews from the time, they say that they found out that they had been dismissed from the band by watching the video, which they don't appear in. That would be so brutal, discovering that that way. I mean, there are conflicting reports about it, mm. so it depends who you believe. Yeah. Mm. It's in the, it's in there in it's in Latoya and Latavia's interests to say that they were fired unceremoniously. That's very true. I highly doubt that they found out by watching the video. It's a much better story though. <laughs> it is a much better story. It adds to the mythology. But Tara, tell us why they might have sent that deaffirmation letter. Why would they want to leave? The allegations were that Matthew Knowles was keeping too much of the group's profits and that there was a disproportionate amount of attention allocated in favour of Kelly Rowland and Beyonce, which even in watching the Say My Name video, you can see the two of them are kind of a bit more central than Michelle and Farah. They're physically, literally more central. Also, Natavia and Latoya do have a lawsuit against Matthew, uh, which was later settled. Um, so he basically paid them out then? It seems that way. He yeah. bought their silence. Reports tell us that he bought <laughs> yeah, their silence. Allegedly. <laughs> it's then telling maybe that Farah is also dismissed from the group. Why did Farah get fired? 
Well, again... How badly do you have to mess it up to be fired within six months of being in the band? That's really, it's really bad. Again, there are mixed reports about why this might have been the case. But allegedly she was missing engagements. So not turning up to rehearsals, not turning up to shows. And then suddenly she was no longer in the picture. Well, it sucks to be Farah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Farah is dismissed six months after joining the band. And I I think people don't really think about her very much when they think about Destiny's Child. She's much less part of the history of the band um, than Latoya and Latavia. And uh, a a really (laughs) hilarious example of this is that Destiny's Child supported Christina Aguilera on her first solo tour in the year 2000. And that tour kicked off in July. So this would have been like a month after Farah had been dismissed from the band. And apparently during their set, during Bills, 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 they used to throw fake money out into the crowd and they didn't even bother to like reprint the fake money after Farrah was dismissed. They just like threw out these bills of fake dollars with Farrah's face on them. <laughs> just discarded like useless money. Do you think she knew about that? Like, do you think her friends were like calling her up? and? Being, I don't like... think her friends would be going to the concert without her, Tara. <laughs> You'd hope not. Also, I mean, famously, of course, the song Survivor is about all the bad mouthing of Destiny's Child. It's then talking about, you know, um, I'm not going to diss you on the radio because my mama taught me better than that. And it, you know, slyly digging at all the rude stuff that starts being said about them at this time, which I think is kind of funny. Okay, so I guess we've been alluding to the messiness that is maybe happening behind the scenes in Destiny's Child around this time. But before all the lineup changes, and even in the midst of that all, there is an image of unity and shared values that they are presenting to the world. I couldn't imagine going solo. I don't think anybody could. It's, it's just like, they're a part of each one of us. No, no, each no, one of no, us no. is a part of each one of us. So we really do love each other. We couldn't go solo. Right. We all believe that we're destined to be together. That's how come the name is Destiny's Child. Right. And like we prayed before we did our, our show, we believe that a group that prays, prays together stays together. Girls who pray together, stay together. Love that. <laughs> All of the the reporting around this time kind of tries to consolidate the idea of Michelle, Kelly and Beyonce as a unit. It's a reaction to all of the kind of fracturing happening in the band, they're presented as three sisters. And that's how they go on to present themselves throughout their career. But some of the press around this time is crazy. The journalist Sylvia Patterson, who's got this book called I'm Not With The Band, where she kind of compiles her interviews with celebrities. And in 2000, she interviewed Destiny's Child. And it's an incredible interview. It's because she interviews them when they're on a tour bus going on the M40 to Birmingham. Amazing. Which is the most like amazingly quotidian <laughs> image of Destiny's Child, this glamorous band uh, on the M40. And she describes them as a three-woman headline-avoiding hydra, renowned for their hermetically sealed private lives, G-shuck's politeness, and steadfast Christian values. And she tries to take the piss out of them a little bit. She asks them if they've ever taken any drugs. She asks them about boys. And they're all quite puritanical in that context. Mm. Like, I guess like that's partly to do with them being from the South 
I can't speak too much to that background, obviously. Um, but from my understanding of like the deep South in America, like I, I think there's something to be said about Christian values and the importance of that. I think so much of that is also to do with this image of black respectability mm-hmm. that Beyonce would stand by for a lot of her career. And, um, you know, this idea of being classy, right? Mm. Um, but it's funny that you know, now she barely gives any interviews. I don't think she's given an interview related to music since 2011 when she released Four. Mm. And around this time, she was much more candid with with the press. Yeah, it's really interesting watching and reading Beyonce early 2000s because it's, it's almost like a different person in some ways just because the image that you get of her now is so curated. It's so only through the lens that she's decided you can see her through so there's something kind of refreshing about yeah her being like a candid early 20s person early 20s I mean, person well, she was she was 19 in yeah. 2000 i mean let's be clear like she's always managed she appears more candid but there is always a kind of level of control and decisiveness in how she presents herself but just compared with today the difference is funny why did Ben actually split up? We never split up. We just basically replaced two members with one member. And it happened for a good reason because the group has improved so much. We get along a lot better. The songs are a lot better. Our magic on stage is a lot better. Everybody gets to sing lead now because everybody can sing lead. There's a cover story in Vibe magazine. The interview is set in the house that they live in, um, which in MTV Cribs, we would learn that Michelle did not live there. Ouch. (laughs) And in the article, obviously, uh, the journalist asks about the split and asks about Latoya and Latavia. And Beyonce and Kelly sort of retroactively chide them for being distracted by boys and and they sort of say like oh you know boys got in their head and they (laughs) lost focus which is very funny given that you know they were 19 at the time um they also excerpt this letter that Beyonce apparently wrote to the girls which kind of has a go at them for sleeping or being on their phones 80% of the time which you know consolidates this idea of Beyonce as a really hard-working and determined person and presents Latavia and Latoya as uh, pretty lazy in comparison. Michelle crops up in this article um, to to back up her girls and she calls Farah crazy, which is not a very classy move. Um, and she says that her allegations are very unnecessary bullcrap that's absolutely ridiculous. Excellent quote. <laughs> um, I also and- like the way that you said Michelle crops up in this article when it's a profile <laughs> of the group. That's so telling. Well, I mean, we can kind of touch on this later, but there is this narrative that Michelle is sort of third fiddle to Beyonce and Kelly, and and that begins even at this early time. And it's sort of hinted at in this article that she acquiesced more. There's a, a bit in the article that sort of made my eyeballs roll into the back of my head, uh, where it says that apparently they asked Michelle to go by Michelle, even though her real name is Tanitra, because it was too ethnic. And they thought that a sort of mainstream pop audience would not necessarily accept her or relate to her, which is weird to think about now. It, it shows us how far we've come, right? With Beyonce doing something like Black is King and kind of thinking about the black diaspora, thinking about um, her roots in Africa and what all of that means. Yeah, I think there's no way that that would happen now, right? But I, I do think it's interesting as an insight into what was perceived 
as necessary to sell yourself at that time like what parts of yourself have to be erased to make you more palatable totally and i don't want to rob michelle of her agency because Mm. obviously she decides that that's something that she's okay with and in the article it sort of says that she doesn't really mind and and you know who knows how much of that is true and how much of that is the journalist insinuating things yeah What does it mean when we talk about poor Michelle? Well, it's kind of a meme, isn't it? I'm specifically thinking of the Super Bowl reunion in, I think, 2013. Oh, my God, Where yeah. they individually pop up when they're singing Bootylicious and they have their individual intros. It's like, Kelly, can you handle this? And she sort of pops up on stage. And Michelle pops up and she sort of slightly stumbles and, like, almost oh. loses her footing. And she sort of recovers it and it's all right. And then Beyonce pops up and, you know, she's fine, obviously. There are little moments like that throughout their career that have been mythologized and um, kind of used to create this narrative that Michelle was the sort of third wheel to Kelly and Beyonce. I mean, Kelly and Beyonce are childhood friends. Michelle obviously joins the group much later. Her outfits were often not as sexy or stylish as the others, but that had to do with, you know, her Christianity and, you know, Michelle would go on to make a a Christian gospel record, Jesus Say Yes. Banger, absolute banger. Um, But she wouldn't have the same kind of solo success as, as Kelly or Beyonce. And obviously, you know, Kelly occupies a slightly different space in music to Beyonce, but she has arguably had like a pretty successful solo career in her own right. Bilemma, like one of the greatest songs of our time, I would argue. I agree. Also, shout out to Stoll. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, there's this idea of, of yeah Michelle as, as a third wheel. and The fact that she doesn't live with them at that point, it's implicitly there, right? That she's not actually as much of a sister. We're going to give you a tour of the home of Destiny's child. That's right. <laughs> We're in the home of Kelly and Beyonce. Okay, so we've been through all this history, but I guess I'm interested in how that lays the blueprint, if it does at all, for the Beyonce narrative that exists today. Well, one thing that really struck me in watching the sort of Cribs episode again is how amazingly goofy they are. They have these sort of like rotting witches' fake teeth that they put in at the end. They're sort of very pally and like girly with each other. And Beyonce now, she's she still has a sense of humor and there's a sense of playfulness that comes out, but it's much more purposeful. You know, you don't get the sense of what she might be like off the cuff. And she's always, always performing in a, in a very different kind of way, in a different register. Seeing them kind of like goofing off and fooling around. And obviously they were kids, right? They're 19. You know, it was a different time in her life. But I think seeing the different level of freedom that Beyonce might have had in the context of being in a band, um, a different sense of pressure, I, I think is really kind of telling. And as you said before, obviously, everything that we see of them during this period is still very controlled. It's a decision to go on cribs and have them present themselves in a certain way. But it's there's still just so much more freedom versus Beyonce, the solo artist. Are there any signs, do you think, that during 
Destiny's Child that she was kind of self-interested, that the goal was always this solo career. Well, she got accused of that all the time, right? When they go on the Wendy Williams show. Wendy Williams refers to the group as Beyonce and the girls, which is quite offensive, rather than it being a point at which Beyonce just like goes along with that. She does call Wendy Williams out for it. And it's actually quite awkward to listen to. I'm sure people had been talking with her a lot about going solo. It can't have not been on her mind at that point. But The fact that she still has this notion of like sisterhood and is like presenting that in public arenas, I think is interesting. She's sort of set up as the one who is going to be the star of the three. And, you know, there are various reasons for this. Like part of it is to do with her dad being the manager. Part of it is to do with her particular talents. Part of it is to do with the fact that she's light skinned compared to Mm. Kelly and Michelle. But it's interesting to kind of like watch all of this stuff back and reread the magazine profiles and sort of see the music videos and to try and trace if that was already there or if that's something that we retroactively apply. That is a really interesting trope, the band and then this one star. It's a really interesting part of pop history how there seems to be this reticence, I guess, for having groups that stay together for a long time. Like you see it with boy bands as well, right? Robbie Williams, Justin Timberlake, and the idea that there's one person in a group who is more deserving of the limelight than anyone else. Possibly the media feeds into as well. Like I, I don't know if it's done intentionally or if there's a reason that it's considered more marketable or something to have solo acts come out of groups. Another thing that really becomes clear looking at all of this stuff again is this through line of Beyonce's work ethic and Mm. her perfectionism. That is definitely something that, you know, is part of her identity today. And you can kind of see it coming out in, particularly in the magazine profiles when Mm. they describe um, the other girls in the band as sort of not working hard enough or not showing up on time. This idea of Beyonce in particular being very dedicated and being very hardworking. And in some articles, she sort of talks about the fact that she felt she had to really push this idea of her being talented and her being hardworking because she was worried that people were just going to assume that she had succeeded because her dad was managing the band. Mm. Even then, she probably felt that bind herself, that she had something to prove. Mm. And I think something that doesn't get spoken about enough is She's also a producer. She's also a songwriter. And on The Writings on the Wall, she did a couple of the tracks on that. But then in 2001 on Survivor, she is a producer on every track on that album, which is kind of mad. With me writing and producing, I made sure everybody sang lead on every song, which is so cool because these ladies are so talented. And it really shows Destiny's Child as a whole. And I just can't wait for everybody to hear it. And so many of those songs, including, I guess, to a point, Say My Name, right, tap into this idea of female empowerment, um, being your own boss, not being messed around by men, making your own money. And you sort of see that begin to map the trajectory for themes that essentially come to define her entire career. I mean, you can trace a through line from Say My Name to Independent Woman Part One and Survivor and then kind of into her solo career. I'm thinking songs like 
diva, upgrade you, single ladies, run the world, flawless, formation, there are so many more, but these stick out to me as, as real key examples of her pushing this idea that she's in control and rallying against the idea that her father, a man, was sort of making all the decisions for her. More generally as well, particularly behind the scenes in terms of production and that kind of thing, those are largely considered to be the arenas of men. And the feminism in the lyrics feels a little bit more meaningful maybe than like Spice Girls, Girl Power, talking about work ethic, talking about, you know, not paying your man's bills, like talking about what someone has to be like in order to be worthy of your time, I guess. Little name drop here. I was talking to Ray Black about this um, because we were talking about how great Destiny's Child are and she spoke about how they had really informed her feminism. I find it really complicated because they also have, you know, Cater to You. They have all these songs that are actually about erasing yourself in order to make space for a man in some ways exactly or playing a kind of damsel in distress role to this traditionally masculine dude yeah and then you know talking down to women who are dressing in a certain way but she was saying how actually she just felt like it was indicative of like the range and how also actually when you are in love with someone you would want to make compromises and show them that they are special in some way and i just didn't really have a, a retort to that i was like oh wow I am just cold-blooded, I guess. I think as well, there's something to be said in this idea of Beyonce controlling her own narrative. With Survivor, you see them taking control of the narrative that is being placed on them. So you have the ex-members of the group starting to talk about them. And rather than just letting that define them, letting the press define them, they decided to take that and put it into their lyrics and turn it against those people. You know, I'm surviving the bad things that you're trying to say about me and I'm not going to say bad things about you because I'm better than that and um, because my mother taught me better than that yes and so you start to see what does become a theme then of like taking ownership of things that could be perceived in a negative way and using them for your own narrative and starting to tell your own story. Yeah, and, and being playful with how um, you're depicted in the press when that video clip of Solange beating Jay-Z up in the elevator went viral and Beyonce addresses that directly in Flawless. It's laying the groundwork for things that she would kind of continue to explore in her later work. Thinking about Beyonce now, we've sort of talked about the fact that she doesn't really give interviews anymore and she sort of is above talking shit about anyone. She's above analysing other people's behaviour. She just sort of leads by example. Mm. But I do think that it's kind of interesting to think about the cattiness that characterised the reporting around that time and how Beyonce herself has perhaps kind of done certain things to address that years down the line. I wonder if she's kind of reflecting on everything that played out 20 years ago when she was much younger, when she had a lot less control and was maybe just more naive. I wonder what she thinks about Destiny's Child now. When she has a big stage, like with the Super Bowl and then again with Beychella, you know, she does bring Kelly and Michelle into that. Like they are still part of her story. Yeah. 
watching that Super Bowl. Oh my Did god. Did you watch it at the time? Yes. It was so exciting to see the three of them together again. I think people love to kind of talk about Beyonce as their favorite member or think about her solo career and how she's such a brilliant pop star in and of her own right. Mm. But I remember watching that Super Bowl performance and just feeling so lit up by the fact that the three of them were on stage together again. There's something really beautiful about their relationship. And I think for all that, you know, we can speculate on like poor Michelle and all those sorts of funny memes about it. I I do think that at their core, the three of them do have a very special relationship. But, you know, maybe I'm just idealistic and a little baby fangirl somewhere inside. Beyonce is somebody who has really particularly in recent years, embraced this idea of sisterhood and particularly of black sisterhood and lineage and creating a space for black women to really thrive and and to make art. I think of the filmmakers that she's uplifted, people like Jen Nakuru, who is a, a brilliant British filmmaker who has kind of done some incredible collaboration with Beyonce and She's, you know, created so many financial and creative opportunities for for black people in general, but particularly for black women. And uh, I wonder if sisterhood is something that's always been there. Now she has more opportunity to show that because she is at the level that she's at, that she is able to uplift people in a very public way. Obviously, you see that with Lemonade. You see that with her Coachella performance, which, again, is very much her reflecting on her past because it's born out of the fact that she didn't get a college experience when she's rehearsing with all these people like part of it is her trying to build this time that she never actually got which i think is is kind of beautiful it's kind of, it's a little bit sad as well i grew up in houston texas visiting prayer view we rehearsed at tsu for many years in third ward and i always dreamed of going to an hbcu My college was Justin's child. My college was traveling around the world and life was my teacher. Building the college experience, having people perform that and bringing all these incredible black dancers. To do that on such a giant scale is telling of this desire for like collaboration and family, I guess. Exactly. And I think it's very easy to kind of buy into the narrative that she is so forcefully determined to make a name for herself, so hardworking and ambitious that she sort of might trample on other people as she ascends. But I actually don't think that's true. Mm. And I do think that that was something that was stirred up by the press at the time or kind of amplified by the press at the time. Because it's just a more exciting story, really. It's exactly like we were saying with Latavia and Latoya earlier, most likely they were just told they were dismissed from the band like that like legally that is the way that that would have happened but it's a much more interesting story if it's them watching the say my name video for the first time and realizing they're not in the group anymore like unfortunately there is something kind of intoxicating about things having a negative spin to them i guess do you think as well like an element of um, this reticence to interact with the press is born out of her having been burned so badly by them in her early 20s and late teens? Yeah, I imagine there's definitely a hint of that. You know, that's a really formative period of your life anyway. It's a very formative part of her career. To be framed in quite a negative light would be quite scarring, I guess. Yeah, or or not even necessarily to be kind of framed in a negative light, but to feel misrepresented. Mm. It would make you distrustful, I think. And, you know, 
20 years is a long time, right? It's a, a lifetime's worth of growing up. You know, looking back at this really tumultuous time in the legacy of Destiny's Child, it's easy to get swept up in it, but it's important to remember that they themselves seem to have resolved a lot of the bullshit. So there's a clip of Latoya from 2011 where she sort of responds to Beyonce shouting her out in a billboard speech. I don't think any of us would be doing what we're doing or be on the platforms that we are without each other. I'm so blessed to even say that I was once a part of that group. She's such an amazing person. I love, I learned so much from her, just being around her. So thank you, V. That video of Latoya is so sweet. I don't know about you, Tara, but it makes me think that that bitterness and resentment wasn't necessarily there in the first place. I mean, we spoke about playing up to a narrative in your music and maybe part of that with Survivor is playing up to that, making the drama into a much bigger deal than it possibly was behind the scenes, because that's a good way to sell a song. In that clip of Latoya, you do see that she still has a lot of love for Beyonce. And I think in the same way that Beyonce is bringing Kelly and Michelle onto stage, the fact that she's shouting out the former members in speeches, it just speaks to the fact that underneath all of this, there is still this undercurrent of sisterhood. Something that Beyonce does do to her credit is talk about what these other women have done for her. There's not a version where Beyonce becomes who she is without Destiny's Child. So that's it for the first episode of 2020. How does it feel being back in 2000? I'm enjoying it. It's making me deeply nostalgic and I'm kind of here for it. Follow us on social media for more photos, clips, recommendations, and to share your own pop culture memories from the year 2000. Our handle everywhere is at MH2020. That's the word, not the number. And if you've got a film, song, TV show, or trend from the year 2000 that you'd like us to chat about on the show, then you can send us your suggestions on socials or via the link in the episode description. And for the rest of this first season, you can expect episodes on High Fidelity, Zadie Smith's White Teeth, the explosion of reality TV, and much, much more. 2020 is a Message Heard production, written and presented by me, Simran Hans, and the very bootylicious Tara Joshi, produced and edited by Jake Oteovich and Emily Wally. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Matt Huxley. 